Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. The latest jobs report out of the U.S. came in much stronger than expected, continuing to show just how resilient the U.S. economy is. And as market participants analyze the recent string of economic reports for guidance, some economists aren't so sure the outlook is as sunny as anticipated. With market uncertainty lingering, it's important for investors to stay vigilant as they navigate uncharted waters. Though inflation is falling, will it fall as quickly as central banks are hoping for? And which asset classes or regions may offer opportunity in 2023? Today, we're joined by Portfolio Manager David Tulk to answer these questions and more. David is part of Fidelity's Global Asset Allocation Team, which manages several multi-asset funds for Canadian investors, including the Fidelity Managed Portfolio Suite. With host Brian Borsakowski, David dives into where inflation could settle. He believes based on various data points that we have hit peak inflation, so now will it settle at a friendly 2% level or above the central bank's target? Among other topics today, they'll unpack if we're going into a recession and how the traditional 60-40 portfolio continues to live. But what should go into the 40 is the bigger question. This podcast was recorded on February 7th, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. David, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you, Brian. Let's start with um, the economic news that came out last week. Uh, I got to say, as somebody who's not an economist or a portfolio manager, seeing more than 500,000 jobs um, get added to the U.S. economy when uh, I think economists were expecting something around 150 or so was surprising. Um, Is this a cause for concern? What did you make of that? Yeah, that's a great way to start the, uh, the, the the conversation. So I think I never want to read too much into any single data print. But generally, I think if you look at the labor market, as you no- noted in your introduction, there still is some momentum uh, under the surface in the U.S. economy. And I think that has surprised the market in some sense because uh, the market is really still focused on the narrative that uh, the Federal Reserve will be able to you know, engineer this immaculate decline in inflation so that uh, inflation will come down and there won't be any lasting economic damage as a result of those actions. And I just think that 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 view is ultimately misplaced. And if anything, the labor market data is a reminder to the Fed that perhaps interest rates need to go higher still and that they need to do more to have confidence that the inflation story will come down as expected. And that's sort of the the message that we've heard from the Fed, uh, even you know, earlier today from Jerome Powell, who was uh, giving a speech, and also from the Federal Reserve's interest rate decision last week. But I think the, the challenge, though, is that the market has been inclined not to believe that narrative. And you know, we've seen this in the past where the market occasionally tries to battle with the Fed. But ultimately, I think who wins is the Fed. So 
you know, as, as you want to gauge how much optimism or how much caution you should take for the year ahead, I still think the balance of risk is towards a more cautious outlook than maybe what the market had rallied on earlier this year. Um, obviously, you know, from from a Canadian standpoint, there is, it feels like we're still seeing job gains here too. But um, uh, the the you know the Bank of Canada had said we're going to pause rates. Yet in the states, it sounds like they could do more. So how does that kind of uh, you know is there is there are we at a point here where you're going to start seeing a gap in in the way central banks uh, treat interest rates? How does Canada act now when you see these numbers out of the states? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it really comes down to what the local conditions of the economy, uh, what the two economies are telling you. So one of the really big differences between Canada and the United States in this particular cycle is that uh, the amount of household leverage and the vulnerability facing the housing market is much greater in Canada. And this goes back not just through the pandemic, but to the prior cycle where the U.S. Uh, really took their medicine after the 2008-2009 housing market fallout by taking about a decade or so to reduce uh, their level of household debt, whereas Canada through that entire period continued to add to that debt burden. So that when you think about the two economies, you know, Canada is much more interest rate sensitive uh, than the United States, primarily through the channel of the housing market and uh, the, the consumer more broadly. So when you think about how high interest rates have to go to affect the same type of deceleration in economic growth and in inflation, it has to go much higher in the U.S. And as a result, you still see the Fed uh, pushing higher with rate hikes, whereas the Bank of Canada, as they've assessed the risk to the domestic economy, does suggest that they're closer to finishing their rate hiking cycle. And if you want to think about an investment theme that falls out of that differential, uh, it's a view that, that we and the team have had for quite some time is that, you know, we're pretty cautious on the outlook for the Canadian dollar. And that can be driven certainly by uh, differing economic narratives, where I think Canada's economy does face more headwinds as a result of the housing market uh, in particular. But also as that interest rate differential opens up in favor of the U.S. over Canada, uh, that's another factor to, to anticipate that the Canadian dollar will struggle against uh, the U.S. dollar. Yeah, I think one of the first questions is on this topic we're discussing is where is inflation headed? We've seen it come down a bit. Um, is it going to come down enough? What are your thoughts on inflation? Yeah, so I think uh, peak inflation is in, and that's not a particularly controversial uh, thing to say, given what we've already seen from the data and given the consensus of opinion out there. But I think the next question is to say, well, where is inflation going to settle once it's finished decelerating? Is it going back to you know, the happy 2% level that's at the core of central bank mandates, so the rainbows, lollipop, sunshine type of outcome? Or is inflation instead likely to remain a little bit sticky uh, above that central bank target, which ultimately means that central banks uh, won't be able to pivot and cut interest rates? And where we come down on that analysis is that I think inflation will prove to be stickier and more persistent than what the market believes. And to dig into that a little bit, and I'll borrow from the Fed uh, their breakdown of inflation really into, into three different buckets. So first, there is the, the goods bucket, which were things that were most uh, impacted through the pandemic as a result of supply chain issues. So we, we remember the used car story with microchips. Uh, so that has already started to disinflate. So most of those shocks are behind us. So that part of the price picture 
has improved materially. So we can set that to the side. And if the Fed was only looking at that, they can commend themselves uh, for doing that correctly. The next piece is around the housing market and housing related services. And that is uh, started to maybe show some really, really preliminary signs of rolling over. Um, but the data on the housing market, at least in some activity data has slowed, but it will ultimately take a fair bit of time for that to show up in the rent data. And ultimately that is what will uh, impact that, uh, that component of, of inflation. So that I think is still in the sort of the neutral category where at least it's not going up further, uh, but to really expect it to come down dramatically, I think is still a bridge too far. But ultimately, then it comes to the third uh, bucket of inflation, which is the most worrisome from the, the perspective of the Fed, and that is uh, non-housing core services. And that has shown a great deal of persistence. And when we dig into what drives that part of the inflation bucket, and it's a large part of the bucket, ultimately that comes down to wages. So uh, wages have remained elevated. There's still an imbalance in the labor market, where if you look at the JOLTS data, Still lots of openings. There's been, it's been hard to bring people you know, back into the labor market. So wage pressure is there. And that's the primary driver of that big piece of core inflation that will remain sticky. And I think you know, that is really going back to the labor market data that we talked about earlier. I mean, that was also a feature of the report suggesting that wages uh, in the most recent month are still elevated. So that is ultimately the part of the inflation story that, that the Fed needs to look at to have confidence that inflation will come back to 2%. And that hasn't really shown any signs of, of decelerating at the level at which, you know, I think the central bank will be happy with. So, you know, that really comes down to the central bank story that inflation is, is likely to decelerate, but just not nearly as fast as what the market or indeed even the central bank um, expects today. Is their target still that one to three percent? Like if they if it came down to four percent, would they start, you know, feeling better? Or they do you think they're really going to try and get it down? You mentioned two percent really down to that level. Yeah, I think operationally, I mean, the closer they get to their target, uh, the better, because that does suggest that, you know, they're they're seeing the type of evolution in the economy that they can be comfortable with, because you know, the, the risk of having inflation perpetually above target is that it starts to creep into expectations. So when workers bargain for higher wages, they can point to inflation and say, well, I deserve something um, higher than what I had last year or the year before. Uh, firms start to see that as well in the sense that they're seeing higher input prices. So they know that they can maybe increase output prices. So what that does through the expectations channel is keep inflation high and reinforce the stickiness of inflation. And that was really the, the big lesson through the 1970s and the 1980s is that inflation was sticky and high. And that was something that, you know, when the Federal Reserve had to think about interest rates, uh, they needed to hike interest rates not only to bring inflation itself down, but they had to anchor inflation expectations at that low and stable level, which ultimately required a lot more economic damage than had inflation expectations been rooted at that 2% level. So yeah, I can say that central banks would be happy to see inflation closer to that target. Um, but I think a related question that you asked is that would that target ever change? And I think today, Jerome Powell was very clear and central banks around the world have been very clear that you know that, that target, whether it be one to 3% or, or 2% or price stability in the case of some of the European central bank, you know, that is sacrosanct. And we know the first thing that what happens if you start to lose control is if you say, ah, we're okay with 4% and the market will say, well, if you're okay with 
let's try to take a run at you and say, are you okay with 5%? And that becomes something that's very destabilizing. So central banks are very clear in this and they will not rest until inflation is low and stable back at target levels. Um, what about gold? So gold has not been the inflation hedge as many have expected. Why is that? Yeah, I think maybe there was that perception last year that gold would move uh, in a one-for-one -one relationship uh, with inflation, and it didn't, certainly. I think every asset class, you know, with the exception of cash, really was under a great deal of pressure last year. So uh, when we look at it on a relative basis, though, and maybe compare gold to other asset classes, gold actually ended up outperforming. It didn't keep up with inflation. Virtually nothing did. Uh, but it did outperform other inflation hedges and other more traditional asset classes. And you know, that to us you know, still warrants a type of allocation in our portfolios. It's a view that we think uh, still is warranted today where you want to have an allocation to commodities and to gold in particular. Uh, but maybe another part of the relationship with gold um, last year is that gold is not just a hedge against uncertainty and inflation, but it's also a, 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 has a correlation with real interest rates. And as we saw, you know, interest rates increase pretty dramatically last year from central banks, you know, that acted as a headwind to gold. So if you want to say broadly, there are three drivers of, of gold, uh, two were positive, one was negative, and that last one being real rates that was negative, you know, that probably had a, an outsized impact on the overall price of gold, which is why it didn't perform necessarily to people's expectations in an absolute sense. But again, on a relative sense, uh, it did exactly what we wanted in terms of an allocation in a portfolio. Um, just how high in policy interest rates have to go. We talked a little bit about this before, but, you know, how far can central banks push this? Yeah, I mean, technically, the sky is the limit. So uh, when we think about what central banks want to see, uh, again, they need to see inflation come down reliably and they need to see that expectations of future inflation are anchored. And until that happens, um, certainly central banks can continue to, to raise interest rates. So, you know, we think certainly if you want to think of it in, in the baseball inning analogy, you know, we're in the later innings. Uh, you know, there is evidence that economic growth is slowing down and Ultimately, that will spill into uh, wider parts of the economy and that that in, in itself will start to bleed into, into the labor market and inflation should, again, begin to moderate. So, you know, the question maybe isn't how high interest rates will need to go, but I think the really relevant question is how long do they need to stay high? Uh, and that, again, really conflicts with the market narrative where they're pricing in cuts um, from the Bank of Canada, from the Fed. Uh, later on this year. And I think that's the narrative that's, that's misplaced and will be really challenged because ultimately, if inflation doesn't come down and if, if growth remains sort of stick, sticky and elevated, you know, that to me uh, suggests that central banks won't be able to pivot because, again, the inflation story won't, let, won't allow them to. So, yeah, we can certainly see another couple of rate hikes. Uh, but again, really what stands out in contrast to the market is, is the view on their part that that central banks will be able to you know, cut interest rates at the first sign of economic weakness. And I would definitely fade that narrative. And the only way to really, in my mind, see interest rate cuts this year is if we see a really, really dramatic slowing in the economy. So in the sense that you know, anything is possible, and there's certainly lots of shocks out there that could drive that, uh, but as the base case or as the most likely outcome, uh, our sense is that interest rates are gonna stay sticky and stay elevated and not provide that relief for the market. And we had uh, 
you know, before the central banks were aggressively increasing those rates by, you know, 1%, 0.5. Um, are we going to see, if they continue to increase, do you think it'll be, I mean, everything feels a bit maybe aggressive now to, to, to the public, but will it be that 0.25 or could they do something bigger if they really can't get things under control? Yeah, no, I think the closest they get to what they would estimate as being a neutral interest rate or even something that's somewhat restrictive to try to bring the economy down. You know, I think naturally, as you get closer to those levels, you're going to be a little bit more judicious in how uh, much you you raise policy rates. So, you know, you can picture the story, you know, a year ago when, you know, you were basically on the floor for interest rates and inflation was through the roof and growth was really strong. You know, it's easy to play catch up at that point to say, OK, we're going to move by 100 basis points, 75, a string of 75 basis point increases. But, you know, as you get closer and closer to the point where it matters, uh, that's where you need to be a little bit more careful. And I think uh, I'm trying to remember who had this analogy, but it's a great analogy that when you're you know, driving your car up your driveway into the garage, you know, you, you don't want to go as fast as you as you would at the beginning of the driveway as you get right to the garage. So slowing down certainly is the appropriate thing. And again, we'll see where it goes from there. So you mentioned Canadian housing before, and, I, and this does you know tie into a lot of the discussion we're having with sort of, especially with Canadian rates, how high can they go? What is your outlook for the Canadian housing market given where things are right now? Yeah, no, in a word, I think it's going to struggle. And I think it's going to struggle largely because we have these imbalances on our balance sheet. So you know, we think about, again, that period from 2008 into the pandemic, we just whistled by the graveyard as a lot of other countries uh, took steps to bring their debt burdens down. We continue to add to our uh, our collective debt burden. And, you know, that was a vulnerability, right? So as you see that progress, that can continue to build, but absent a catalyst, it just remains a vulnerability. But as we've seen with the aftermath of the pandemic, not only do we have the vulnerability, but we now have the catalyst in the form of higher interest rates to bring housing back down again. And I think this is an inevitable period of adjustment. And you know, if you look at the very high frequency indicators of real estate activity, the market seems to have really ground to a halt. Uh, listings have even come off the market as sellers want to take a bit of time to reconsider the backdrop. Again, interest rates are elevated from the perspective of a new borrower. So, yeah, I think it's definitely a pretty pronounced headwind uh, facing the Canadian economy and arguably one that's more pronounced here than in many other countries around the world. So when we think about it from an asset allocation perspective, if we choose between different regions uh, we want to allocate to, you know, Canada doesn't score particularly well because of its direct vulnerability and a headwind to grow. So we would much prefer to find opportunities in markets overseas, whether that be maybe the U.S. for a sense of defense or emerging markets for a sense of offense, that's where we would see the opportunities, largely because of that uh, that debt dynamic impacting growth here at home. What would you do to fix housing? And I'm sure if you could just snap your fingers and fix it, uh, I don't know, um, uh, you'd be on, on all, the, all the webcasts, but, but how do you think you, you would fix housing? Yeah, no, I mean, there's no easy one solution. I mean, unfortunately, the imbalances that have existed in housing have um, have existed for a while and have only become more challenging. And obviously, with immigration policy bringing new people to this country, there's just simply maybe not enough homes available. So that's you know a very common um, narrative. But the one thing that I would think of, at least in terms of the price behavior of housing, that through the pandemic where Nobody was coming to the country. The borders were effectively shut. You still saw price increases that were pretty dramatic, which makes you 
think there's got to be something else that's going on in the background. And so that's an interest rate story. That's maybe something to do with the amount of speculation that took place within the real estate market. So you can't point to any one factor per se, but the confluence of these different factors have led us to where we are um, today. And in, in the AMA, yeah, we, we talked about the notion of perhaps making you know mortgage interest costs tax deductible. So if you wanted to think of something that could perhaps reward uh, you know domestic borrowers and maybe act as a disincentive for the investment community or or foreign investment that would be one way that you could potentially look at it but no I don't think uh, to your point there isn't a, a silver bullet that will magically cure the housing challenges we face and uh, I think there's a lot of really smart people in all parts of the policy framework whether it's in governments or in the private sector um, that are spending a lot of time trying to think about these issues but these are yeah legitimately thorny issues and uh, I think that one little idea has some cute appeal, but I don't think it'll get us to where we need to be overnight. I would not mind deducting my uh, mortgage interest, but one of the things that I've, I've always wondered in this debate is just where do people want housing prices to go? Are we talking, you know, pre-pandemic prices, back to 2008 prices, if interest rates are up above 2008? Is there a level there that would say, okay, you know, this is where we'd want to stop? Yeah, I don't know if um, certainly there's no policymakers that themselves are, are trying to target a, a level for uh, home prices. And I think obviously if you're a, a, a longstanding homeowner that hires the better from your perspective, if you're a, a new entrant into the housing market, you would like the exact opposite scenario. So no, there's no easy way to say, you know, this is a level of, of price that's appropriate. And as we even talk about the notion of prices, I mean, we can think about national statistics, but, you know, Canada is such a varied country from coast to coast to coast that you know, every local market will have its own eccentricities and its own nuance. So, you know, ultimately, I think what policymakers would like to see is the sense of, you know, a balance in housing where, you know, there is at least enough uh, housing supply to meet incoming demand. And that, you know, prevents maybe some of the dramatic increases in, in prices that that make affordability an issue. But no, there's a lot of different ways that that, that can be addressed and, and just trying to find a a one home, a one price for housing to to bring that all under control is is probably not going to happen. So moving to a different sector of uh, the Canadian economy, energy, um, you know, it has done well from a stock market perspective, at least you know over the last little bit. Where do you see energy going, and and is that a big positive for Canada's economy? Yeah, that's an interesting question. And so when we think a little bit about you know how we've approached our allocation to Canada, I mentioned earlier in the sense that we're not particularly favorably inclined towards you know, the Canadian economy, I, I say that from the context of where we sit as asset allocators, where our choice is saying, okay, do you want to be in Canada versus these other geographic regions? So that's not to say that every single company in Canada is not a good investment. So you know, when we think about our building block portfolio managers who operate in the Canadian space, you know, they see lots of interesting stories, whether that be in energy, whether that be in financials. So you know, that's an important point I wanted to stress that even as we are maybe cautious on Canada, you know, there's still lots of really compelling stories that take place uh, within Canada's economy that investors can, can bring into their portfolios. So that just sort of sets the ground for how we would view energy. So when I look at, you know, the global energy market, I still think there's a pretty big mismatch between demand and supply. So supply really hasn't been able to keep up with the rebound in demand. And that's one of the reasons you can see that commodity prices you know, have been elevated uh, through time. But you know, obviously, uh, the risk of a global recession will, will hurt that demand side of the equation. So we could see a little bit of weakness there. But I think structurally, if you abstract away from those cyclical dynamics, the, the global economy is still undersupplied. 
So we would say that we would want to have an allocation to energy. Now, the question is, well, do you want the Canadian energy or do you want maybe global energy players? And our reasoning there is to suggest that, again, thinking about how we choose regions, as much as you might see a positive element that would lift Canadian energy, I would think that the housing market story impacting the economy as a whole is the bigger story. So that's a bigger headwind than whatever tailwind you might be able to get um, through energy. So our preference is to still have that commodity allocation, but think about it maybe in more of a global commodity allocation or a global energy allocation, as opposed to you know increasing our allocation into the Canadian market. Does China's reopening make you know commodities more favorable than maybe they were before? Yeah, no, that's absolutely part of the narrative. So we have a very robust debate uh, in our team about that very reopening narrative and, and what it can do in the context of slowing growth elsewhere. So, you know, where you come down on that, you can say, well, what's the best way to play China's reopening? Do you want to own China specifically? Do you want to own emerging markets broadly? Do you want to maybe own energy as a proxy to that? Do you maybe want to even own Europe as sort of a, a bounce pass into the EM story? And basically where we have come down on that debate is to say we want to have an overweight into emerging markets. We want to do that with an active manager because we want to be able to stick handle around maybe the, the less favorable parts of China's market in particular. So maybe I would cite ongoing risks to the property sector as something we want to avoid. So an active manager can do a security by security analysis to figure out what's the best way to play uh, the, the Chinese reopening story. So we do have an overweight um, into emerging markets. I think that's probably the most pronounced piece of offense that we're playing right now, because generally the rest of our portfolios are structured to be somewhat more defensive. But as we always try to seek balance between different drivers and different themes, the EM story is one that we're, we're favorably inclined towards. So you know, that's, that's the one piece of, of optimism that certainly um, is expressed on, on the overall portfolio allocation. What about stocks versus bonds and diversification? I mean, the bond story has really changed over the last you know, several months. So how do you sort of view bonds in a portfolio versus stocks today? Um, and and you know, how important is diversification right now? Yeah, no, I think uh, we saw last year that uh, trying to find diversification was exceptionally difficult. It was you know, basically the worst year for 6040 uh, since the Great Depression. And you know, we've talked a lot about the reasons why in terms of you know, stimulus from central banks that was taken away very aggressively, concerns around recession. Uh, all of that uh, is really what drove the correlation between stocks and bonds from being negative, such that it has uh, through long periods of time, to being positive and with both asset classes declining. So that's really the, the worst case uh, outcome for a 60-40 or a balanced type of portfolio. And when you get to the core of know, what makes that balanced fund work. It is, again, trying to achieve diversification. And we still believe in diversification. I think everybody uh, should certainly continue with that belief as well. But you want to be a little more careful in, in how that's achieved. So as long as you can say that maybe there's uh, stresses facing the equity market if earnings adjust lower as economic growth slows, and maybe there's risks still facing fixed income, uh, you want to be a bit more creative in saying, well, how do I get insurance in this type of portfolio? And one of the tools that we use that we've always used is to, for example, use currency. So one of the big contributors to our, our relative performance last year was being overweight uh, U.S. dollars. 
So, you know, bonds weren't going to do it for you. Uh, equities certainly weren't helping either. So if you have that rally into the U.S. dollar, that flight to safety move in the market, uh, that was one area that we were able to use. So I just I still think that 60-40 um, will live. It's just how you get the 40 is, is important, what kind of diversification you can do within the bond side of your portfolio, and then being a little bit more creative in, in how you manage the correlation between stocks and bonds. So in our case, that involves using currency, and that's something that I anticipate that we will continue to do. So um, obviously, you know, I, I could have asked at the beginning, but I'll, but I'll end it off with this. It's a, a, a big question is, do you, are we going into a recession? I, there's still a lot of people who now are thinking maybe not, uh, or is it going to be really deep and it's hard to predict these things, but what's your view? Yeah, I think the uh, immaculate soft landing where inflation can come down without there being any economic damage, I think that's a fiction. Um, so ultimately, central banks will need to engineer a recession. And that's unfortunate. That's just the nature of the way the economy works in an interaction with how central banks operate. So for central banks to feel comfortable in, in where they need to get inflation, unfortunately, they do need to drive uh, a reduction in growth, which you know will result in a recession. I think it's uh, an inevitability. I mean, whether it happens this year or maybe a little bit later into the year to follow, I think that's still open to debate. But ultimately, it's, it's something that we will have to face. And we on our side, in terms of our portfolio allocations, are anticipating those dynamics and, and will move to position accordingly. David, thank you for joining us and looking forward to chatting again soon. That was my pleasure. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.